You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. And today I'm joined by my co-host and friends, the lovely Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center and the lovely Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. How are you guys doing? We're good. We're good. Hi. It's been a while since we've talked and and we were kind of talking earlier about the Delta variant and COVID and, you know, Carrie, I know your husband is an ICU physician. So what what's new on the front of COVID and Delta? Oh my God. Um, it's, it's, bad. It is probably the shortest summary statement that that I could probably give. Now, my husband is a, an ICU doc for kids. And so he is not hit in quite the same way that our adult colleagues are because ICU docs are divided up into the neonates, which are the itty bitty babies when they come into the world, but before they ever leave the hospital. And then you've got the pediatric ones, which are anywhere from babies to you know 20-ish year olds. And then you've got the adult docs. And right now it's the adult docs that are taking the biggest hit. Now, my husband is seeing a disproportionately large number of kids compared to what had been seen previously, which is horrifying, um, especially for for anyone who has small human beings in their lives that that they want to try and keep as safe as possible, particularly before the vaccine becomes available for those younger age groups. But, But our adult colleagues, I mean, he was... He was at a a work meeting um, last week, and he was talking to the his adult colleagues, and they are beyond burnt out and tired, and a lot of them have gotten sick. You know, Susan, you were just mentioning that one of your one of the people in your lives. Yeah, one of my medical school classmates has been battling with COVID since late spring, and it's not he he's taken a turn for the worse. So we're we're all praying for him and his family. And I mean, it's unfortunately modern medicine only has so much that can offer at certain points. Yeah. I saw an article recently about pregnant women um, at the University of Alabama and their hospital and that there's um, right now, or at least as of a few days ago, there were seven pregnant patients that were on a ventilator because they couldn't breathe without assistance. Ten were in the ICU and another 39 were admitted. So it's scary for pregnant women too out there. And that's why it's really important that hopefully as a listener, you guys hear this. And I think we're all in agreement that, you know, we really want everybody to be vaccinated, whether you're trying to get pregnant or you're pregnant, we want you to be vaccinated. There's good evidence that it does, that getting the vaccine does not impair your fertility in any way. And we, you know, as much as we want to have a baby, we want healthy mom and healthy baby. And uh, every time, you know, every week when I go to the hospital to do surgery and I see my OBGYN colleagues, almost every week I hear about a mom who is at one hospital and had to have an emergency delivery and babies at another hospital and, you know, one or both maybe fighting for their lives because of, you know, potential prematurity and different things like that. And it's so sad when, when these things are happening, especially in a time that should be the happiest time of your life. And preventable. We all know too, from, you know, from our residency days, I know I saw several women who got viral illnesses like chickenpox during their pregnancy and you think about chickenpox as being a, 
benign viral illness you have as a kid, and maybe now not many people have it as a kid because they're vaccinated, but when women get things like that in pregnancy, it really affects them dramatically more than it would somebody that's not pregnant. Just lung capacity is not the same as it would be if you weren't pregnant. Um, Just sort of your whole physiology as a pregnant woman is different. It just makes you more immunocompromised and just more likely to succumb to really bad viral illness like COVID. One of the things that is probably the the clearest thought process on do I get the vaccine or do I not? And I know a lot of people are really anxious because it is it's been released for, you know, maybe a year now and and everyone thinks the technology is new. It's not necessarily. This is the first time it's been applied in a large scale capacity, but the technology itself has been under development for many, many years. But when you look at the potential risks and side effects of do I get the vaccine or do I not, you know, if you get COVID, one of the possibilities there that is not remote, like legit could happen is death. And there's only one side of the equation where death is a possibility. And, and it sounds super dramatic to say, but as physicians where a, a really large percentage of our friends, colleagues, who we talk with on a daily basis, who's on our Facebook feeds, you know, all of those things, the physicians are seeing horrible things happening and, and it's preventable. And even if you get the, get COVID after having had a vaccination, there's really good data that shows that it can keep you out of the hospital, off the ventilator, and out of the morgue. And um, and that's important because all we want for you is happy, healthy families, babies, all of that. So um, so hopefully, hopefully this helps at least one person make a decision to to help get themselves protected because those are those are bad phone calls to get, receive, hear about, all of that. Yeah, I think we can suffice it to say that this is our plea from the three of us to you guys. Please get the vaccine. Please. Uh-huh. You really yes. need it. Even if you're trying to get pregnant or you are pregnant, you really need to get it. Um, so if you're looking for a sign, this is your sign if you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> it is. It is. Please get that vaccine. On that note, we'll try and perk up a little bit and be a little more happy and a little more optimistic. And because um, in past episodes, we've done viewer questions as a whole episode and people have really seemed to like that. We're going to do another episode like that. So Susan's going to lead off for us um, and read some questions questions, and we're all three going to kind of provide some answers to those. All right. So we'll start off with our first question. It says, Hey, thanks so much for this podcast. I find it truly informative and normalizes a lot of my concerns. I'm a 30 year old with an AMH of 1.1 and my husband and I have been trying to conceive for a year. We've been on Clomid for the last three months. Um, They did 50, 50 and a hundred. And for the last two months, 50 and a hundred. Oh, so they've done a total of five months. Okay. I've been spotting after finishing the five days and right before I begin to ovulate. I talked to a gin who said that was probably just my period. She continued to say that I probably didn't have my period previously when I thought I did. And they would just send a new script and retake the dose. I know I had a period a week or so earlier and certainly know the difference between full-on period and spotting. My husband and I haven't started our time dinner course, so I know I'm not pregnant and I had tested negative. I have two questions. How serious is spotting when taking these types of medications? And how would you advocate for yourself to get your questions, concerns answered? I'm going to start IVF with a completely different fertility doc if this round doesn't work. And I'm sure I'll have concerns, but I'm afraid to bring them forward because I don't want to be belittled and told I'm ignorant to my own body again. Also, in terms of my first question, I don't want to come off as over-emotional or being a hypochondriac, but it's super scary to have spotting and bleeding when you're not supposed to. Any advice? Thank you. Carrie, you want to start with that one? 
Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. So, <laughs> there are lots of questions in that one question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so first, let's talk about just spotting and bleeding in general in in the course of a period. Now, oftentimes, people who are on Clomid have kind of irregular periods anyway, so that can factor in. Um, but one of the things that I always think about when someone comes back and they say they have spotting in the midst of their cycle, it makes me think that they're not getting good estrogen production that is helping to grow the lining in the uterus to stabilize it, which makes me wonder, is your dose of Clomid high enough as one part of it? And are you really developing an egg? Because eggs come from estrogen. No, estrogen yeah. comes from eggs. <laughs> um, you can tell, disclaimer, it is it is early in Las Vegas. Um, and I am not naturally a morning person most of the time. <laughs> so estrogen comes from eggs. And, and so it may mean that this dose of Clomid isn't sufficient for you. The other thing that I always think about is that Clomid can occasionally have this paradoxical reaction where instead of making your lining thicker, it makes it thinner. And depending on the monitoring you're getting with your Clomid cycle, um, a lot of OBGYNs, when they do it, they just give you the Clomid and say, here you go. As a fertility doc and, and Abby and Susan, I, my guess is you do this at least somewhat similarly, like we're OCD. We're going to check the ultrasound. We're going to check all of the things along the way to make sure that things are going right. Most general OBGYNs don't do that. That is not a problem per se. It's a difference in training and a difference in what we do and how we do it. And so it may be that that you're just not quite hitting where you think you are because Clomid is wonderful and that it's cheap and easy. You take it, you have sex, you see if it works and if it does, fabulous. Um, but if it doesn't, you move on to, to something else, whether that is a monitored cycle or IVF or what have you. So I think if you were my patient, I would say, let's bring you in and look at your endometrium mid-cycle because like Carrie alluded to, Clomid, the mechanism of action is it can be an anti-estrogen for your endometrium and also for your brain. For your brain, if it's an anti-estrogen, that makes you produce more of the hormone FSH, which may help stimulate egg development. But in some women, I don't know, about 10% of women, that anti-estrogen effect in your endometrium, it binds to the receptors that estrogen would normally inhabit and it prevents your lining from getting thick. It can also cause breakthrough bleeding. So somebody called me and said, I'm having breakthrough bleeding on Clomid. My first thought would be not that I'm worried about the spotting being anything bad like cancer or anything like that. It's just a symptom of the bigger problem. And so, you know, to get pregnant, you have to have an egg, you have to have a sperm, you have, have to have open tubes, and you also have to have a really nice place for the embryo to implant. And I would worry that, that Clomid probably wasn't doing the job that it needed to with your lining. So I, I think, I don't know that I would go up on Clomid first. I think I'd look at the lining mid-cycle just to kind of see what's going on and figure out if we needed to maybe switch you to even something different like Femara or Letrozole, mm -hmm. which doesn't tend to have those same problems. Another thing is, Lots of people who are using Clomid who aren't necessarily ovulating on a regular basis do tend to have an increased risk of having polyps. So a structural reason that you may be having this bleeding as well. So if you haven't had potentially like a saline ultrasound or a hysteroscopy, you could have a structural little polyp that's causing this breakthrough bleeding that could be interfering with your chances as well. And just because you've had may have had vaginal ultrasounds, vaginal ultrasounds are really pretty crummy at detecting polyps. You really have to put some a little saline, a little sodium water into the uterus to um, get the good visualization of those polyps. Well, the other thing that Carrie mentioned too was the is there's the possibility that maybe you're not on the right dose. Maybe you're actually not ovulating at all and your lining is building up, but it's breaking off at different times because 
your body's not really sending it the signal to stimulate at the same time and then be released at the same time. And so, you know, it may be that you need to be on a different dose. So I, I think before I ditched your doctor, I think I would probably kind of say, well, could I come in for an ultrasound and take a peek? You know, maybe if you're not with a fertility doctor, maybe now is the time to get to a fertility doctor just to kind of get more information about what's going on. But overall, I don't think that there's anything you know, terribly wrong with you at all. I think it's just your response to the medicine and we just need to figure out if you need to be on a different dose or a different medicine. The other thing to unpack with with that question is um, you mentioned that you were afraid of bringing up questions because you were going to be, you know... Ridiculed. Shot down. <laughs> shot down. I was trying to come up with some really cool alliteration there, like okay. beleaguered, beleaguered, you know, berated, whatever. But we just jumped right in and answered for you, Carrie. Yeah. And and this is why we work well together. But that is something that I would worry about because this process is emotional and it's also very technical. And so kind of knowing what you're doing is important. You don't have to know every single detail. You're not going to know every single detail because there's a reason that it took all of us 11 years after college <laughs> to get to this point. Yes. Um, However, questions are normal. We're all used to getting them and they should be able to explain at least somewhat why they're doing what they're doing. And so um, I would say, go ahead and ask. And if you do get that reaction, then maybe it is time to switch because you guys are not a good fit together Um, because no doc should ever give you a ton of crap about wanting to know why you're doing what you are doing. Um, that said, there is a right and a wrong way to ask, you know, if you come, come in, come in hot and angry and accusatory, you are going to get a different reaction than if you just say, can you please explain this to me? Um, and at least, you know, for people who are asking, asking me. So I, I always appreciate intellectual curiosity, uh, anger and accusation, is going to make me think, all right, we're not a good fit. You probably should go somewhere else. Well, another thing too is I think at least in my patients, when I see them initially and start them on clomid, I say, okay, this is our plan for three or four months. If it doesn't work at the end of three or four months, let's sit down and regroup. Well, what I don't know is, you know, I think sometimes people feel like that four month window is like an eternity and they, you know, some people frankly need a little bit more talking to and, you know, interaction with If that's the case, just schedule a consult visit with your doctor. I mean, nobody's going to get upset with you about doing that. And I think sometimes if you call on the phone, you do get the nurse because that's the way most offices are designed. But if you really want to talk to the doctor about, let's change my plan or why is this happening? I'm sure your doctor would be perfectly happy to talk to you, you know, if you set up a visit at time so that they can spend the appropriate amount of time and really the time that the question deserves with you talking about and explaining it and and you together get to decide then what you want to do as opposed to going through a nurse as a mediary, basically. Exactly. And another thing I really encourage my patients to do is write down your questions because when you're sitting at home and you're, you know, on Dr. Google or whatever you're doing, that's helping generate these questions, you know, they're all coming into your head. And then when you walk into your doctor's office, you're like, uh, I have no idea what I was going to ask. I, I do it myself. I mean, it's like, I, I mean, I had my endocrinologist appointment this last week and she's like, you got any questions? And I'm like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Ready to get off the phone. Let's get, let's get through this, you know? And, and, and so I think that's a natural tendency, at least it is for me. So write down your questions. Cause we really do want you to be 
comfortable and knowledgeable in what we're doing to help you achieve your goals of having a baby. Because if you understand the whys behind what we're doing, um, it, it, it's going to help ease your anxiety and drive down those negative hormones that we don't want and, and help us get where we want to be. So one last part of that question, from what I understood, the patient is 30 and she said her AMH is 1.1. Um, mm-hmm. technically that number is normal. So anything technically over like one, but on the lower end of normal, but on very much on the lower end. And, you know, we don't have any normals for age per se, but generally I'd love it if a 30 year old had an AMH more like two instead of one. And so don't want to make you panic. Listen, you know, whoever wrote this question, but you know, to me, that would suggest that maybe you do want to see a fertility doctor sooner rather than later, because, you know, typically we move more aggressively, or at least we recommend more aggressive treatment sooner if we see that there's more challenges. And, and so, you know, it's not to say that this patient couldn't get pregnant with the next COVID cycle, but just you worry a little bit if you see an AMH that's on the lower end of normal at age 30, you tend to see that more in mid thirties or late thirties. Okay. So our next question is curious to know your thoughts on PRP for ovarian rejuvenation for patients with low ovarian reserve and POI slash POF. What are your thoughts? So thinking about these types of treatment, there's really not a lot of good data about putting in platelet rich plasma, which is what PRP is. And the, the thought is, and sometimes people have heard about this in terms of like vampire facials, and what what that means is that they take out. Is that a thing in Las Vegas, Carrie? I've never heard of a vampire I've never facial. Heard of have... a vampire facial. <laughs> no, because I heard about it the first time when I was living in Atlanta <laughs> in training. This is not a Vegas thing. Um, so what you do is you you essentially draw blood, you split, you spin it down, and you separate the components. So you take out the red blood cells, and you take out the plasma, which has a lot of platelets. Which um, the thought is that there's some there's a protective and or rejuvenating factor to it. And so in the term of a facial, I don't quite know how they get it into your face, onto your face, whatever, but that's so part wait, of Wait, 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 let me, let me interrupt. You're, so you're taking people's blood, you're getting out the platelets and you're putting it on your face. So that's how the facials supposedly work. Imagine it's injected kind of like Botox, I would think. Like, I don't know if they do microneedling with it to help it absorb. Like, I was going to say, it looks like that would be like an infectious disease risk is what I'm thinking, but I don't know. No, I'm just It's your own blood. Oh, I see. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, gotcha. It's your own blood. So, um, and, and I know I have asked a lot of random stuff, questions like that. I really and truly don't know anything about <laughs> most of this stuff. Um, maybe I need that. I'm thinking, Hey, maybe this is a good idea. Girl, you do not need anything. You have beautiful skin. You are awesome, Abby. Oh my <laughs> yeah. goodness. <laughs> yeah. You have gorgeous skin. Um, but anyway, so the thought is, is that you, when you're applying it to the ovaries, you, you take this plasma and you spin it down and then you go in and you inject it. So we would, um, we would go in and put it in kind of in a similar manner that you do a retrieval. So it's ultrasound guided and you take the, you know, the special needles that we have. And instead of taking fluid out of the eggs, you put this plasma in through it. There's really no good data for it. It's done in very few places. Um, there's, I think there's a couple of places in Southern California where it started within the United States you know, they're, they're scattered around. Like I, I don't hear about very many people doing it. And the reason I don't hear about very many people doing it is about the, because there is zero data for it. Like on the surface, it just seems like knowing how eggs and ovaries are formed biologically 
like throwing plasma in your ovary. I mean, like it just, I mean, it's like, oh, I I don't know. That just, it seems like a really... It's a really interesting concept. (laughs) That was a nicer way than what I was saying. (laughs) I would think it would be really expensive too, I bet. Yeah. I I just, I haven't seen any data to make, make me think it's worthwhile. Like when you really drill down to some of the some of the stuff it's like okay i can see where someone if they were going to go down this track could follow the biology like it's kind of the concept of you want more oxygen so get a blood transfusion like there's but there's data behind that right um and so you know for the athletes who are trying to increase their red blood cells things like that for this like you can kind of follow the the biochemical pathways and say oh yeah this makes sense but in reality, when you look at what are the differences, um, unfortunately, it just hasn't panned out. And and it's one of those things where stuff goes in cycles, in, certainly in fertility, and we see this, where something that was popular several years ago burns out and then comes back. Um, you know, I think this is going to be one of those things where it's the science is really weak and the clinical benefits of people who are doing it. Because especially for people who have premature ovarian insufficiency or POI, these women want want a child using their own eggs more than anything. And so they are willing to try anything. anything. And, and so I think you could probably get a huge study together really quickly and and get the data and, and there's no data. So Well, and going back to data, I think a lot of times some people sort of feel like, well, maybe this is the hot new thing and maybe there's going to be data and maybe it's going to be something that's going to be really helpful. But unfortunately, I think we have all had experiences in medicine where there's things that we think are great. Like the example I always use is hormone replacement therapy. When I started out in training, we thought it was great. Everybody got hormone replacement therapy. We thought it was the fountain of youth for women. And, you know, we know now that it's not certainly not all bad and it is good for some women, but there's certainly women that it's not good for. And it mm-hmm. took a huge randomized perspective study to figure that out. And so I think having sort of lived through that in my training, it kind of makes me skeptical and wary when people throw these things out and go, oh, this is the next, you know, wonder bread, you know. And so I think you really have to look at it. And plus you have to look at it. Could it do any harm to me in any way? And, you know, this sounds relatively benign, except for the fact that you're having something injected in your ovary, which can lead to infection and bleeding and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, I just think you have to take look at things with a skeptical eye because I think a lot of patients that we see really, like Carrie said, want to do anything they can to try and get pregnant. And I think, you know, we sort of have to look out for them and kind of look at the forest for the trees and make sure that, you know, you don't spend a lot of needless money on things that we just don't think are going to be helpful. Absolutely. All right. And how about, I like this one. Could you talk about the pros and cons of natural versus medicated FET? Is one better than the other or have more success? I've also seen that there may be some middle ground that is a modified natural FET. I want to do what is the best chance, but the thought of those PIO shots for so long are nerve wracking. So... I think as long as you have adequate progesterone exposure, the rates are are fairly similar all the way throughout. I think a natural cycle can be, in order to do a natural cycle, you have to have regular periods and you have to be reliably producing uh, eggs in order to get that progesterone development and supplementation. I think you run more risks doing a natural cycle FET. That said, in the right hands with the right patient, I think they're really effective. Um, Same with a modified natural cycle, which 
it can can mean different things depending on which clinic you're talking to. <laughs> to me, a modified natural cycle is using typically letrozole to induce ovulation. And then you make sure you've got those the, that corpus luteum, which is a leftover space from when an egg releases that produces the progesterone. Um, you make sure you have a corpus luteum and then you go from there. You know, in my mind, we have worked really freaking hard to get that embryo. And I want zero chances that the progesterone is not adequate because if you have an adequate uh, progesterone exposure in the five days, five, six days leading up to your blast transfer, as well as after that's a negative pregnancy test. And so um, there was recently a study that came out that compared the different forms of progesterone looking at vaginal, oral, or uh, intramuscular. And, and there was really clear data that the muscular was better um, in terms of several parameters, miscarriage rates, ongoing pregnancies, things like that. And so I tend to be more partial to the progesterone in oil. Certainly that is not an appropriate treatment for everyone. And so, you know, some of my patients who've had breast cancer, for example, and who want as minimal extra hormone exposure as possible, like I'm happy to do modified natural or natural cycles with them if, if they otherwise meet what we need. But I think a lot of it's going to depend on what your, what your center does on a regular basis, because they're going to know what's most effective in their hands. Right. I think that's the biggest thing is, you know, sometimes uh, in, in our clinic, I do mostly program cycles. Um, we do some modified natural cycles. We really don't do many truly natural cycles. I do fewer of them just because of logistics, because my offices are about 45 minutes or three hours away from the lab. So those, those things can add into the decision-making factor. And when I tell people what my success rates are, it's based on doing what I normally do. So when you come in and you're like, oh, I want to do this, I can do it, but it's not what I normally do. And so if you, you feel very strongly that you need to have a natural cycle embryo transfer, I would go to somebody who does a lot of natural cycle embryo transfers because then you're going to get a true representation of, of what they do on a regular basis. Yeah. In our clinic, we do, I think, some of all of those things. I think one thing that patients don't realize as much with a natural cycle is that you're much more likely to be canceled because maybe if you show up and you have a cyst on your ovary or um, we just have less control over that kind of cycle. So if you're somebody that is in a really rigorous job and you've said, okay, this is the day I'm going to do my transfer and this, you know, you have it all planned out that can kind of just throw things off if you do a natural or a modified natural cycle. Um, I think to Carrie's point about progesterone, I always feel better about using intramuscular progesterone because we can measure those hormone levels. Whereas if you use some other form of a progesterone, we can't really measure very well your serum levels and kind of figure out kind of what you're producing versus what um, what we're giving you. You know, I think that a lot of times the modified natural cycle patients that I see or natural cycle patients I see are patients who maybe have had a baby or two and they're juggling two kids and they're trying to get in to do their transfer. And I think it's just an, it's an easier cycle to do for sure. Um, a lot less monitoring is necessary to do it. But those are the patients I think who tend to do it more commonly in our practice. Very good. Well, let's do one more question. All right. Hi, my wife has been undergoing fertility treatment for the past few years using a combination of oral medications and injections. She also has to take oral medication because she has irregular periods. Without any medication, she wouldn't have a period at all. 
This past month, we experienced a problem at our baseline ultrasound. Specifically, we were told that my wife's estradiol levels were too high and the lining was too thick to consider doing treatment this month, but we did not get a really good explanation as to why. However, we were informed that birth control would help us. Could you please offer some insight into how such an issue like this can surface seemingly out of the blue and what can be done to help ensure such a situation doesn't repeat itself? It almost seems as though the baseline was conducted too late in her cycle. But then again, I'm not the expert. So usually when the endometrium is thick and the estrogen is high, um, to a certain degree, you're correct. It probably was done at a time in her cycle when she was about to ovulate or just for whatever reason had a high estrogen. But the problem with a patient with irregular cycles is that's that's the whole problem. It's hard to know when to bring them in for a baseline. And so a lot of times if you see somebody like that who has a cyst or a thick lining or high estrogen, the easiest thing to do is put that person on birth control pills, just like your doctor did, because what that will do is that'll suppress further um, secretion of hormones that may delay the cycle further. And pretty much reliably, by the time she finishes that pill pack in about three weeks, that'll induce a menstrual cycle. And also at the same time, the hormone levels will be down to baseline. So the best time to start medicine is when the lining's thinner and primarily when the hormone levels are low and your wife will respond a lot better to the fertility ovulation induction medicines if she's at baseline. So I think that's why they did the birth control pills. And I don't think it's any major cause for concern. It's kind of one of those things. Once you kind of figure out how your wife's cycle works, hopefully they'll get her on some medicine to make her ovulate. And then you won't have to worry about this problem if she, you know, if she ovulates every month. In terms of avoiding it in the future, it's not... It's not super easy to avoid when you're in the midst of fertility treatments, unless you're doing back-to-back-to-back, you know, Clomid or Letrozole, whatever cycles. Because when you're doing those back-to-back cycles, presumably she's ovulating and then she will have a period because her hormonal controls are set up to give her a period if she's not pregnant. If you are skipping months in between, then then you have to kind of plan, all right, are we going to use progesterone to get a period? And, and this is true if she just flat out does not get periods. Um, the other thing that, that I heard is in your question, you said you guys have been doing oral injectable medications for a couple of years. That's what I was, I was about to zone in on this because I was like, if this is what's happening, when I'm assuming you're probably not, you're probably working with your local OB/GYN, not necessarily a reproductive endocrinologist. But even if you are working with a reproductive endocrinologist, to me, I mean, I'm sure all three of us, the little siren bells are going off. You really do probably sound like somebody who needs to have a conversation about IVF because realistically, when we're looking at IUI cycles or cycles that are super ovulation cycles where we're using oral or injectable medications. If you haven't gotten pregnant within three to six months of trying those therapies, you probably need to consider other options. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing too, the injectable may have been like the, the trigger shot, the Ovidril injection too. So that's but an injection. still years. Yeah, yeah, it's still years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I agree. Yours is what has me concerned because, you know, it all, I mean, we all have those patients who come in and they're like, oh, I've been doing this for, you know, 12, 24, 36 months. And it's like, oh my goodness, I'm so glad you're here with me now. And I'm 42. (laughs) Time is never anybody's friend. No. Cool. All right. Well, so it has been great talking to you guys about these questions um, and great talking to you just in general. 
And so to our audience, thanks for listening and tune in next week for more. Also, be sure to subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. We'd really love to hear from you. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com to schedule an appointment with any of us or submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for the Ask the Doc segment or one of our special episodes like this that we go over questions. We also love ideas about upcoming episodes. Don't hold back. We'd love to hear your ideas. Have a wonderful week, everyone. We'll talk to you soon. Be safe out there. Bye. Bye. See ya.